before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you. A lot of times, it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money. It was here. It was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour. Uh, joining me, as always, is the effervescent and ever-wonderful Stephanie Pobler. <laughs> Hello. Yep, Hello. How are you? I am very, very well indeed. Very, very well indeed. Now, um, we are. this is, in fact, the second <laughs> part of our conversation with Cy Jacobs, our guest today, um, for reasons which uh, shall, I guess, have to be revealed. Um, because we recorded this podcast first last week and 50% of the team involved in bringing this to you uh, screwed up completely and forgot to record it. Now, <laughs> well, modesty, I have an excuse for us, though. Modesty I've... precludes me revealing, <laughs> which, revealing one of us, <laughs> which one of us was responsible for that. Uh, uh, let's just say it wasn't Steph. That, uh, oh, please. But we have a perfect excuse. It turns out, you didn't know this, I'm sure, that Mercury was in retrograde. So. Yeah, it always seems to be in retrograde. <laughs> I don't know what that means or how long it lasts or whatever, but that is why it happened. Is it, is it no longer in retrograde? That's the only I thing have I have no idea. Yeah. Anyway, listen. The, the, let's hope it's not so that uh, have an auspicious start today. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> Now, for those of you <laughs> listening into this, uh, what I can tell you, sadly, is that the first conversation we had with Cy was absolutely extraordinary. But that, <laughs> that will remain, unfortunately, uh, only for Steph and I's ears. But he very, very graciously uh, agreed to give us some more of his time. Uh, so we are going to make another go at recording this <laughs> and see if we can let you listen in this time. So, Steph, for, for those people out there unfamiliar with Cy Jacobs, why don't you give them a little background on him and his career? Yeah, well... We'll hear a lot about the cycles that he's lived through. But I first got to know Cy when I was introduced by a, um, a sort of mutual acquaintance in the business who um, realized that both Cy and I were focused on the housing bubble and the impact of its inevitable deflation on the financial sector at the same time. So I met Cy really around 2005, right when the housing bubble was at its apogee. And we were both starting to flesh out what the consequences of its bust would be. Um, so that's how I met him. And frankly, I think we'd be hard pressed to find anyone who uh, knows more about the U.S. financials uh, than Cy Jacobs. And he's got a track record uh, that it just underscores how uh, how uh, astute he is as an analyst of the financial sector. 25 years in business, I think this year, um, which is tremendous because that would imply to me that he was probably 15 when he started his hedge fund, but somehow or other, uh, he, uh, he has done that uh, all while looking incredibly young. Sickeningly young, in fact. It's, uh, yes. it's kind of upsetting 
to look at him and uh, realize that it just makes me feel as old as I look, which is not really what I want to be doing at this point in my life, I have to say. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I mentioned it, maybe it's redundant, but the name of the firm that he runs is uh, aptly Jacobs Asset Management, as in Cy Jacobs. So Jam, otherwise known as Jam Partners. So if anyone Jam wants to do partners. some research um, on some cyber stalking on Cy after this, there you go. Easy way to do it. Well, let's welcome back the super and terrific Cy Jacobs. Cy, thank you so much and welcome back to the super terrific happy hour. We're really, really grateful. <laughs> it that it seems like last week I was, <laughs> I was here. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, we've uh, we've all owned up to our part in the debacle, um, which is basically 100% me. So we've got that out of the way now. Yeah. And we can just hopefully <laughs> give everybody a chance to listen um, to you uh, this time without me interfering in the worst possible way. So um, if we can, uh, we'd, we'd just love to go back to the beginning because the beginning of your career was a very important time in financial history. So if we can, we want to drop you right back in there and, and kind of if you can pop your head up and tell us what the world around you looks like and, and where it went from there, it'd be great. Sure. So, um, boy, I go all the way back. I like to say I was a like teenage stock market hobbyist in the seventies. So I, I do remember that last great bear market, which you know lasted more than a decade, uh, mm-hmm. where stocks went down or sideways and and all that. And that's that's kind of where I got my chops. But I, I started my my career on Wall Street. Uh, in the early to mid 80s, um, first as an intern when I was in business school at Payne Weber. And um, you know, the one sort of worthy thing, uh, worthy note there was my intern project there was to help. Uh, I could, just got randomly assigned to the financial sort of bank and financial services group there. And their project for me was to figure out what mortgages were that were just starting to be created and traded at Solomon Brothers, which is relevant for later in the story. And, um, you know, that was sort of the first thing I studied, which was, you know, what turns out to be this great new technology or invention of securitizing loans instead of the, you know, the way loans had always been made, which is you know, a lender making a loan to a borrower and keeping the paper. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was sort of impressed that it was, you know, revolutionary and that it would sort of change the way loans were made. And it was sort of my first taste with the idea that, um, you know, things are changing. There's going to be winners from the change and losers from the change. And, Let's figure out which, you know, let's figure out which were which, and that led me to my first full-time job, which you know, right place, right time, for me after business school was at Solomon Brothers, you know, which was really where all this got birthed and popularized, and um, that was 1985, and it was uh, again great timing for me because I got to you know I just sort of parachuted in there at with the benefit of hindsight, turned out to be, you know, the sort of peak power, peak cycle, peak everything um, for that firm and, and, you know, soon to be just the entire 1980s Wall Street power cycle. Um, so that, that was interesting. And uh, it was great for me to be there because, you know, what I had started to study was, was happening there. So I got to, you know, I, I had the, um, 
I was lucky enough to be, even though I was hired into the equity research department, I, w- I was told on my first day on the job that I was going to be put through the Solomon Brothers sales and trading training program for the next three months and got to do, you know, learn from, you know, the best minds in, in on Wall Street at the time, uh, what was going on on trading desks and, and the capital markets that had you know, rotation around all the desks and all the departments and uh, it was a great thing for somebody who was destined to be an equity guy because Solomon Brothers was not an equity shop yeah. at the time. It was really a, a fixed income shop. Mm-hmm. And and again, it just put me in really good stead as an equity analyst to, to know something about the fixed income market, especially I was destined to be a bank analyst. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, you know, I learned a lot. Um, in that regard, and it, it really got furthered my education and thinking about securitization uh, and how it was going to change everything in, in financial services. You know, you, you, as, as you came in there, obviously, you, you kind of walked into the teeth of, I guess, the savings and loan crisis would have been the first, I guess. Uh, you missed continental Illinois just about, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it must have been the savings and loan must have been kind of the first real event that you, you witnessed. Is that right? Or have I missed something? So, um, yeah, a couple of small events before then, like the stock market crash in, in 87 right. and <laughs> Drexel Burnham falling in, yeah. in 89, 90. And um, so, you know, it, it, all sorts of things. The, the cycle turned and, and the tide went out and, you know, you you found out who was swimming naked and who was, you know, who was committing fraud you know, underwater. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was a lot of that. Um, and, um, you know, the savings and loan crisis was relevant to me because, you know, my theory at the time was that, um, you know, these portfolio lending savings and loans that had just, you know, borrowed short and lent long and, made mortgage loans, kept them in portfolio, and they were just living with the credit risk and living with the interest rate risk uh, once they started getting displaced by uh, the likes of Countrywide Credit and others who were sort of my champions of change in the mortgage business back then. Uh, they, They obviously, they started, you know, taking on different risks, you know, all sorts of underwriting risk, credit risk, construction lending risk, Mm-hmm. Um, and and then we found out committing a lot of fraud as well, and that all got exposed. So while I didn't see that coming, I didn't see all the fraud coming. Um, it, it's kind of part of that theory anyway. Mm-hmm. That um, you know when you get displaced in your core business, you start doing funky and um, out of uh, mainstream things that come back to bite you. And uh, you know that's a story. I've seen again and again, uh, and, over, and over, um, yeah. over and over again, um, you know, throughout subsequent cycles, loose money, you know, creates the arbitrary and regulatory change, creates the incentive to do outside the box things, which are sometimes smart and sometimes disastrous. And, and that, that was at, in a time before the Fed was encouraging you to do the most reckless things you could possibly do. <laughs> I'm sure we'll, well get it was to a that very, point. It was the very beginning of it. So 1987, I had moved on from Solomon Brothers to LF Rothschild, um, which, by the way, you know, basically got felled by the stock market crash. So the, the firm, mm. you know, which had just gone public and, you know, was an illustrious firm, uh, lost a lot of money that day and the next day and never recovered from it. But that night, 
Greenspan put out, yeah. put out, so I pardon the pun, you know, Greenspan right. <laughs> put, you know, version 1.0. Um, yeah. you know, that was the night of the original it Greenspan was, It was born, yeah. Yeah, he just put out this press release saying that the Fed will provide the liquidity that the markets need mm. to, to function. And, you know, the market came back kind of for, for a couple of years and, and then couldn't escape its fate um, at the end of an economic cycle. You know, we'll, we'll fast forward to 2020 and COVID yeah. Um, yeah. later uh, in the discussion, but you know, right, that was the right. first, that was the first time it happened and, you know, the market crashed and set off, you know, and then Ivan Boski got, got arrested and Michael Milton got indicted and, you know, that set off that whole end of cycle uh, series of events, um, but the put the Greenspan put got born, um, and then you know you slingshot into the '90s when we recovered from that, and that built up to the tech bubble and the the convergence trade bubble, and and mm-hmm. you know when Greenspan pointed out irrational exuberance but didn't do anything about right. it, <laughs> um, and then just let you know LTCM you know be that cycles. SNL crisis and came to the rescue um, of them. So by then I had formed Jam and and was doing this not as a sell side analyst but as a as a portfolio manager and fund manager, and you know saw the repeat rinse uh-huh. sort of cycle uh, go on with LTCM needing to be bailed out or or euthanized and and the investment banks saved and that spawned the internet bubble um, and I lived through that uh, barely um, as I watched um, you know internet uh, banks be formed you know with completely sort of ridiculous and absurd business models that were never going to earn its cost of capital but be you know the flavor of the month or I wish it was a month, you know, flavor of, right. a, of, of, of the years, um, you know, for a while um, before that ended and, um, and rinse repeat, you know, when, you know, they, you know, 9-11 came along, Fed saved the economy from the popping of the internet bubble, bubble in 9-11. Housing bubble got formed, right. um, and uh, you know by then, you know Greenspan was gone. You know, did the, had, had done the, the handoff off to Bernanke, and we're just getting farther and farther away from my, you know, Federal Reserve champions. You know, yeah. Volcker and right. Mcchesney yeah. Martin, and you know, they're just getting. They, they couldn't get uh, farther. You know, from it, or, and, or so you and, thought. Or so you thought. <laughs> uh, so I thought. So, um, so I, you know, and 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 we can go on. You know, we can go on to yeah. to two thousand and eight and and all that. And well, well, uh, sorry, just just going back to th- that that first bust, particularly with the savings and loan, because you'd seen basically this nascent industry in all, in all the MBS and the and the and the kind of fixed income credit derivative market really kind of kick in at that point. And it seems like it was a fairly short cycle before people got way out over their skis and that whole thing kind of blew up in its early stages. What was it like for you kind of coming in to a, to a new product, getting a look under the hood and really understanding it extremely well because it, it, you were kind of live time, you wouldn't have to catch up with anything. And then to see it fall over the way it did, did it 
did it surprise you or was it already evident what was going on in, in, in this kind of extreme behavior? Well, look, it, it, it took a long time to unwind because remember the savings and loans were in a way the victim of yeah. the securitization yeah, yeah. Um, model. They weren't the failure of the nation model. You know, back then I was a, you know, a true sort of champion of it thought that, you know, it was, it became apparent that this wasn't like a mortgage market thing. It was just a lending thing that everything would be securitized. And you saw credit card receivables and home equity loans and personal loans, you know, everything started being um, securitized. And, you know, the, the lesson that I mentioned earlier that was so valuable that, you know, I, I made sort of the early part of my career on as a sell side analyst is that there were going to be winners in this, you know, as the sort of the new players who, you know, were lending and spreading the credit risk um, and interest rate risk. And it was just a much more efficient recycle, recycling of capital, risk averse recycling of mm-hmm. capital. And then there were going to be losers, the portfolio lenders. And, you know, it, like everything else, it sort of waxed and waned. And, you know, in, 19, in, in the 90s, you know, a whole new breed of subprime, you know, securitizing lenders, um, you know, were born and were successful and ran too far with the ball and, and mm-hmm. you know, pushed the envelope too much. And that was, you know, look, that's, it's sort of the basis of, um, you sort of going back to Solomon Brothers, um, you know, the book Liar's Poker, um, you know, talked about how great it was, you know, this original idea at Solomon Brothers. By the time, um, Michael Lewis, who was my classmate at Solomon Brothers mm-hmm. training program, came around to you know write what started out as the 20th year anniversary of Liar's Poker and turned out turned into the Big Short. The securitization model had had, had run amok and yeah. jumped, or, or jumped the had, shark. <laughs> yeah, had jumped the shark, and, and you know, sort of bad dudes were were you know exploiting it in the subprime industry you know people who i thought were like revolutionaries and like good guys but, uh, you know for example angelo mazillo mm-hmm. I, I think got seduced in the end by having to compete with you know the the um you know the Fanny subprime guys from for market share um and you know did countrywide and angelo ended up doing all sorts of things in the 90s that that oh you know in the aughts that they said they'd never do in the 80s and 90s and um so but they were also you know, enabled by the ratings companies i mean there were a whole host of contributing absolutely everybody you know the people who were supposed to regulate this and and um you know, put controls on it were, you know, were part of the game, exactly mm-hmm. how I would mm-hmm. say the Federal Reserve has become, you know, the, you know, the disease, not the cure. So, um, you know, the, I think the, the bank regulators and the rating agencies had become part of the problem mm-hmm. um, by then. And so, you know, I saw it developing but, uh, you know, at first I kind of cheered it on. It was really, you know, I just thought it was like an advance in, in, in the capital markets until it went um, too far. Um, and, but every time it, go, it went too far, the Fed just sort of doused it with more yeah. liquidity because um, <laughs> you can't have the stock market be going down um, or credit spreads widening. So, you know, I've just been through what, you know, two, three decades of those cycles 
um, without letting the system correct. Um, and each time, just the sort of numbers and the scale of it um, got bigger. So, you know, after the great, you know, recession and great financial crisis, um, the powers that be responded with QE and, you know, didn't really let this, the system fully self-correct. Um, and that spawned, you know, other abuses in, uh, in the teens and um do you think though that at the same time they did impose a lot of regulatory burden on the financial sector i mean was there some offset going into this do you feel like the banks were in really much better position because that's the idea is that you know thanks to the uh improved regulations banks had ample capital and they were really in a much better position is that true, or do you see weaknesses that maybe weren't obvious being exposed by this crisis now? So, you know, what I like to say is that they, you know, they did what they always do, which is they, you know, very firmly nailed the barn door shut. Um, you know, after, after the horses, the animals right. had escaped, <laughs> and did a, did a construction job <laughs> um, doing that, and 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 made sure that the same exact mistake won't be made again. Right. And, and I think they're, they were successful in that. I, like, I, I don't think that you know, the next crisis, I, I, I've been saying, I didn't, I didn't, well, pre-COVID, I was saying the next crisis won't have to do with mortgage underwriting. Um, so you know, they, they over-regulated that industry. Um, and they did, uh, to be fair, I mean, they did, the easiest thing, which is just impose higher and tighter capital controls on, on all banks. So, yeah, the you know bank balance sheets are stronger going into this crisis than than the last one. And you know this time, the most dangerous word words in English language. This time will not be different. Uh, will not be the same. Um, um, and uh, but you know different different risks are being taken and right. different different frauds are being committed and, you know, different speculation is running amok uh, this time around. Talking about frauds, obviously, since since uh, we first convened to do this, and I've got a <laughs> smile on my face again every time I have to mention it, it burns me. Um, obviously, we've seen the, the Wirecard debacle unfold uh, since, you know, we're talking about different types of frauds. And, and, you know, looking at that and how that's gone down, um, I mean, it literally looks like they just made up just about every number, and they lied about having $1.9 billion in cash sitting in a bank account. I mean, it, it doesn't seem to be a particularly complicated fraud, but it seems to be something that, that eluded the auditors for three or four years, despite countless warnings that this was a big fraud waiting to take place. It, when you watch that unfold, was there any, were there any lessons in there, anything that, that happened that, that made you rethink how the fraud cycle that we're likely about to go into might unravel? Well, you know, again, the difference this time, you know, last time when we went into the crisis, I I had a strong sense that the the fraud, the the underwriting, uh, subprime underwriting crisis was happening, you know, in my own front yard, like sorry, right. in my area of expertise. And, and, you know, Steph and I used to talk about this, 2005, 2006, 2007. And, and, you know, it was sort of happening under our noses, but, you know, it was in like our air of expertise. And, and as I just said, 
I, I think it will be different this time. It's I, I don't think that's where it's going to happen. So I see mm. things like Wirecard um, and other frauds, and and it's look, it's chilling because it's um, you know we're bank investors and financial investors. Um, you know, banks are a little black boxy, so they've been prevented from making the same mistakes in mortgage, but they'll make different mistakes, and mm-hmm. it's hard to tell exactly who's going to, you know, fall for the next fraud and which bank portfolios mm-hmm. it's going to end up in. I, I don't particularly know, you know, um, you know, with syndicated loans and, and all that, you know, these, the, the debt of, you know, soon to be frauds get distributed thanks to securitization and bank mm-hmm. syndicated yeah. Uh, loans, it, it it just gets distributed around, and there's you know there's sort of like the optimist way of looking at it and the pessimist right. yeah. way of looking at it. Well, <laughs> yeah, it gets you know it gets diluted, it Diffused, gets yes. uh, it yeah. gets Diversified. spread around, and then you know the pessimist would say, yeah, it, it got spread all over the system. You know, why like is COVID. that better? <laughs> so um, yeah, it's tough as a you know as a as a student of financials to know, you know, where it's going to show up. And we, you know, the way we try to do it is, you know, we, you know, we're, we're, we've been talking a lot of macro amongst the three of us for the last 20 minutes, but we try to kind of keep our head down and, you know, look at the macro, but, you know, not other than sticking our neck out in 2006 and 2007 and saying, yeah, the stuff, you know, in our area of expertise is going to infect the system is not mm-hmm. contained or ring fenced. Uh, you know, since then we, you know, we try to say, well, yeah, well, we, we don't know um, exactly where and when it's going to happen. So, you know, we, we operate as is our mandate since jam was formed in 1995 on a long, short equity uh, basis, you know, we we stay relatively market neutral, and we try to be long, you know, good underwriters and those with all the signs of prudent um, capital management and credit underwriting, and uh, that are under underappreciated and mentions that seem to be the biggest risk takers that happen to trade at higher valuations because they're growing faster and everybody loves it. And, you know, so there's, there's a, like an inherently cynical, if not bearish, you know, construct mm-hmm. to that long short hedge, but we, you know, we just try to, you know, invest in those keeping their nose clean and try to be in harm's way or benefits way of, of, uh, you know, the, 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 the coming problems or brewing problems in in the credit market. And and I suspect um, you know this cycle won't be any different. Um, how however hard the Fed tries to right. obliterate the cycle with liquidity, I, I it doesn't change human nature and underwriting mistakes. I mean there's no amount of liquidity they can add to the system that erases credit underwriting mistakes. Yeah. Mm. made three years ago or five years ago. Like, you know, the Wirecard fraud is a perfect example. Like that that happened in a zero interest rate environment where the Fed is pumping in, you know, it didn't happen. It got uncovered, uh, you know, in, in, in a moment where the Fed and central banks were just pumping record amount of liquidity. And, and yet the fraud got uncovered. So but, because it's been going right, on for five or 10 years. Yeah. But you're fighting now two forces because you're not just fighting a Fed that's trying to repeal the laws of nature, but you now have this new entrant, the retail investor, 
who, you know, you're trying to impose a rational thought on your pro- investment process. And these yeah. people clearly have no sense of reason whatsoever. How do you grapple with that, with the, so, the retail? You know, my history that I mentioned, you know, fighting the internet bank bubble of mm. 1999 and, and early 2000, you know, would tell you, it's one, of two, it's one of two things, you know, you either, you know, there's that saying that I've mentioned to you guys, uh, the Santayana, um, uh, now cliche of, of, you know, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And, and then we, us cynics, you know, include, include the three of us in that camp, you know, <laughs> like to believe we're like too smart, you know, not to learn from history. But, you know, I, 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 I want to start a new cliche, which is that, you know, those of, those of us who do learn from history are doomed to suffer through short squeezes yeah. <laughs> you know, un, un, until so history finally repeats itself. Right. So true. <laughs> that, uh, unbearably long short squeezes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, you know, you guys are tweeters. Tweet that out. Let's Consider let's, that let's coin. Right. Consider <laughs> that coin. Yeah, could, like, That's gold, let's, let's, Cy. That's let's, gold. <laughs> let's uh, start the cliche. Um, and and I, look, that's where, I, I feel like that's where, where we are. Like, you know, we're... We're smart enough to know that, you know, this isn't going to end well, but, you know, when is that going to be? You know, when exactly should I uh, start my short position, you know, when it starts not ending well? And, you know, that's that's, uh, an ongoing battle, you know, when you're, uh, you know, a short seller or or even somebody who, you know, I'm I'm a half half of a short seller. I'm a short seller right. and, a, and a long investor. So, you know, when do you, um, you know, overweight your shorts because history's about to repeat itself. And, yeah. and that's, so look, I, I find, I think we're at a, at a similar point in history um, as 1999, 2000, you know, I kind of thought I knew what the the sort of pinprick to the bubble was when COVID started, completely startled me, you know, not like I saw that coming. Um, Now the Fed is fighting it. Um, Just like, you know, I'd like to point out the parallel uh, to 2007, 2008. So, you know, the Fed started plunging interest rates in 2007 and continued all of 2008. And I remember this moment, um, which was particularly painful and it's actually depicted in in um the book and then movie um the big short where like for those of us following like static pools of mortgage securitization subprime mortgage securitizations we know it was the end game you know by late 2007 and then you know in early 2008 you know new century and a bunch of other subprime guys had you know had already unraveled and it was over. Like, you know, if anything, we, you know, got the flag for like, you know, celebrating in the end zone. It was like, you know, excess ends. And then came this, you know, face ripping rally, you know, in the spring of 2008, Bear Stearns had already gone down. And I remember I did an interview with Barron's where um, at that point I said, I don't think that, you know, the history of, the financial crisis is going to be like the Bear Stearns story. Like yeah. it's not 
okay, Bear Stearns went down, you know, like Penn Central went down and Continental Illinois went down and then we moved right. on. And we were at a time, and I think there's sort of parallel to the celebrating the end of COVID where, you know, people said, okay, like, you know, we got our fingers burned. Bear Stearns went under, like, uh, let's resume the party. The Fed is at our back. Let's, you know, don't fight the Fed. And, you know, there was a don't fight the Fed moment in spring of 2008, where, you know, really made you think. I mean, I, I remember um, <laughs> questioning, you know, I, I, we had this whole theory about how it was going to infect the rest of the economy, but it felt for a while like we might have been the only ones worrying about that. And mm. does that make us wrong or, you know, does that make us early? But I, I thought we had won already. And, um, you know, it, it was just one of those moments where you, you really have to sort of question your conviction because the market is telling you you're wrong. And by then, don't fight the Fed was just like one of the laws of nature. And the Fed was loosening. And um, but then it ends up that, you know, Bear Stearns was not the right the, yeah. the financial crisis of 2008. There was well, the small matters of, you know, Lehman Brothers, AIG, um, and, and others. I have hope for us, and that is that my housekeeper asked me the other day if I had heard of anything called Robin Hood and whether she should use it. She didn't even know what it was, but <laughs> she had been, you know, her brother-in-law had instructed her that she needed to be doing Robin Hood, and she asked me about it. So maybe we're getting, hopefully, knock on wood, to the uh, the peak in the insanity. Yeah, the, but, the uh, Joe Kennedy shoeshine boy yeah. stock tip yes, moment. Yes, exactly. That, you know, that, that, is, that is Robin Hood. So, yeah, so I, I find that fascinating. I, I, I could tell you guys sort of a... a au courant story of, uh, you know, what we're fighting, like our modern day version of net bank, telebank, um, you know, internet banking bubble, um, June 2020 version on Robinhood, uh, which is, I, I think it's an interesting story. You know, it's, it's, it's just sort of sign of the times. And, and I think I know <laughs> that this isn't going to end well. Um, not, <laughs> Hopefully not for me, but uh, I think I think I'm going to be on the right side of this. Um, and that is, I mean, I think you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to the absurdity, let's say, of Hertz going bankrupt. Yeah. Um, the fixed income market and the loan market, like understanding the math, that it's like the argument is, you know, are the senior or unsecured debt of Hertz worth? 60 cents or 30 cents or 20 cents. And, you know, there, there's this huge equity hole and, and this is just a matter of cents on the dollar, not for the equity holders, yeah. but for the, right. for the creditors. And then suddenly, because there's this movement of buying the most beat up names, um, I, you know, it started with sort of the airline stocks and you can kind of see, okay, so this is buying the airline stocks like in October, 2001 after nine 11, I think yeah. that's sort of the genesis of it. But then again, it kind of runs amok with buying, you know, bankrupt, um, companies and, and running, you know, you had sort of insiders of Hertz and Carl Icahn selling for pennies on the dollar, you know, wondering why they're even getting pennies for the for the you know now bankrupt clearly worthless equity and the stock runs up to four or five dollars a share um the 
the financial world, um, you know, jam equivalent of that story now is that, you know, we have always for, you know, long time trafficked in, you know, what are known as mortgage rates, which are really just levered bond funds. And, you know, the purest, simplest form of it is the agency, going back to my MBS history, um, you know, agency mortgage-backed securities are just owned by mortgage REITs, you know, levered six to one or 10 to one, you know, at times. And, you know, these are government-guaranteed securities. There's not a lot of credit risk. There's just spread risk in them. Yeah. And, you know, it's a great business over time if you, um, you hedge correctly and all that. And there are those that do it well and those who don't do it well. But when the Treasury right. and mortgage market freaked out in February and March of this year, you know, everybody got nicked to one degree or another. So our favorite in the field, the guys who we think are the, you know, the smartest guys in the room, n- not in the Jeff Skilling way, in the like <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci That's way or Bill Gates way, <laughs> um, is the largest one, AGNC Corporation, AGNC Mortgage, they used to be known as. Um, who, you know, so they got nicked when spreads blew out and, um, you know, they delevered a little bit and, you know, they took, uh, you know, something like a 15% drawdown in their tangible book value in the first quarter. And then the Fed came in and rescued and, and made it clear that, you know, by the, look, they're, they're starting to buy junk bonds. They will defend the mortgage-backed right. securities market <laughs> all day long and forever. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think it's sort of the safest credit market to be in for mm-hmm. the next couple of years. So we really like AGNC. The stock went down. It went to a discount to, to book value, as it sometimes does uh, in tough times. Um, so, you know, we own that stock at at. Uh, less than 90% of tangible book value. We we own the preferred, which also got hit uh, in the 80s of par. We think you know that that is they're back to being really profitable, earning double digit ROEs and paying double digit dividends. So the preferreds we see as very safe and will likely trade over par as they formerly did. So that's sort of our baseline. We like plain vanilla mortgage-backed securities REITs, but the ones who were not so smart and not as fortunate um, and were in the wrong place at the wrong time were the ones that owned more exotic credit risk. Um, and I'll give two examples. I won't name them because they're not as big market cap as AGNC. We'll just call them sort of mortgage REIT A and mortgage REIT B. Saw book value get almost wiped out. Saw you know 80 to 90% drawdowns uh, in their book value. Saw collateral seized by their... Um, you know, their leverage providers on Wall Street and in the banking industry and saw their book values go down from the teens to the two to three dollar range. And it's not coming back. That's gone. The collateral was seized, collateral was seized and liquidated. So now their book value in one case is under two dollars a share, in one case is three or less dollars per share. But then, you know, the sort of band of Robinhood investors discovered mortgage rates. They were down from the mid to high teens. They were, you know, at two or three dollars a share. Their trailing dividends made the yield look like they were 50, 60, 70% dividend yields. And we started noticing on the, you know, the modern day equivalent of the Yahoo message boards from the, the internet bubble, you know, on 
you know, stock twits and Twitter and, and all that, that people were referring to these 50, 60, 70% dividend yields uh, for the equity and that their, you know, stocks were 80, 90% off their highs and, you know, mm-hmm. the stock started running. What was fascinating is that clearly the Robin Hooders and others have discovered the equity market and in some cases the option market. They haven't discovered the preferred market. Right. So the preferreds of these very wounded um, mortgage REITs were trading where they should be after they just you know, blew out 80% of hmm. shareholders' equity. They were trading at 50% apart, 60, 70% apart, you know, in, in, in some cases. So we started noticing, you know, we were looking for bargains. We were looking, you know, on the long side at the, at the preferred stocks as, you know, fixed income that we think we can earn equity-like returns uh, now that that crisis is over. But then we started noticing the equities going up and the reason the equities were going up. (laughs) And, you know, there was a day uh, last week uh, where in the same company, we bought a series of preferred at 55% of par. And we not only, we didn't short the stock, which was trading at three times book, we sold call options on the stock (laughs) at implied volatilities in the 150 to 200% Uh range. So if we had been exercised, if we had been called on the stock, we would have been shorting the stock at four or 500% of book. And the same day we bought the preferred for 55% of par. So, you know, you know, there's a saying, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay liquid, but... You must be hoping so, given that. You know, I like that. I on staying liquid on this one because I think I know what's going to close the arbitrage. Yeah. Um, other than just, you know, Sir Isaac Newton's law of gravity. You know, <laughs> I think that, you know, the stock is going to come down anyway. But to the extent that it stays up, I mean, mortgage REITs, and the good ones traded book. I mean, they peak their head yeah. above, you know, 100% of book and, and, and then they, they come down. Um, you know, mortgage read A and mortgage read B happen to be externally managed mortgage reads. So the, the manager of the, of the reads are, you know, have a conflict of interest with the equity holders. You know, they're incented to be large and get paid basis points as large as possible, get paid basis points on the size of the balance sheet. So, you know, the conflict of interest arises that sometimes they do equity offerings. You know, when there's a good story to be told about dividend yield, they'll do an equity offering in 90% or 95% of of book value. They rarely get the chance, especially those who, you know, destroy 80% of shareholders' value. Like, (laughs) in what world do they get the chance to do equity offerings above book value? let alone 300% of book value. So, you know, the, the, the irony was the only reason the arbitrage hadn't, hasn't closed already is that their losses were so great in the first quarter. It took them so long to file their delayed <laughs> 10Q, you know, to file their financial statements uh, for March 31st that they, they couldn't do an equity underwriting. They couldn't huh. even activate their at-the-market um, shelf, and they couldn't do an equity offering. They both just filed their 10Qs 
um, last week. So I think they're probably yeah. out there already. Chomping at the um, and And they yeah. won't stop. They'll, they'll just keep pounding that arbitrage yeah. until it's at book value or below, which you know, I think that's how the high end of that, you know, the jaws of that arbitrage, you know, that's how one side of the jaws of the arbitrage is going to close. Mm-hmm. I think the other side is going to come up, which is the, the discounts preferred because we're in this bizarre world where these equity mortgage REITs can raise equity and yeah. improve the balance sheet. So I think the preferred is going to be made mm-hmm. money good by the ability to sell stock above book value, just, just like the creditors of Hertz were going to get more cents right. on the it's dollar, amazing. you know, by, <laughs> you know, the, the seeming ability to do an equity right. offering, you know, at two or three dollars a share, you know, until when the telling, SEC rained on their parade. Yeah. So the SEC read it and said, right. you're saying it's right. You're actually saying worthless. You, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you've, I think that there are comments where I think you should use larger font (laughs) on the word worthless. I guess we give them credit for actually doing their fiduciary responsibility, you know. Yeah, well, it's hard hard for them not to in this case. Uh, Sai, let me ask you something. This this is fascinating what you're just talking about here because, um, you know, we have now in the markets an irrational actor and and in, in the Robin Hood crowd. And the Fed are always kind of both rational and irrational. It's irrational in the in the big picture, the longer term, what they're doing because of the repercussions down the road. But it's totally rational in and of the moment that they do what they do because what else? They can't just step aside. But you know, when I listen to this stuff and, and the, the narrative recently has been Main Street is showing Wall Street how to do it. They make uh-huh. a mockery of Wall Street. You know, Dave Portnoy is calling out Warren Buffett and Dennis Gartman and everybody else. The reality is that for guys like you who really know their space, having these irrational actors come in is, is the perfect way for Wall Street to do what it always does to Main Street and make money because you understand the capital structure, you understand how a bankruptcy process works, you understand all these things as you spent your career doing it. Um, and yet there's this narrative that Wall Street is getting taken out behind the woodshed and spanked around by you know, Robin Hood retail investors, which to me is just farcical. But, but it's, you know, for in June 2020, it happened. Mm-hmm. Right. It, you know, it happened all month, you know, and it started happening in May. And I like the history books going to be written. And, and you know, I, look, I, I hope we all look back at it and say, you know, like, ha, 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 ha. Right. Taking, you know, taking candy from a baby. And, I, you know, what can I say? I, I think it is. Yeah, um, but it, you know, it did, uh, you know, dare I admit that I didn't put my first short on in mortgage read A or B at three hundred percent of book. You know? <laughs> it it it, uh, it seemed incredible to me. A bit. So um, and mm. look, well. it, 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 there are casualties. I mean, Julian Robertson in in two thousand, you know, yeah. couldn't couldn't take it. Um, you know, just thought he, you know, didn't understand, you know, the mm-hmm. new age of, in, of the internet bubble. But, um, so, you know, there, there are casualties and, and it presents arbitrage, arbitrages. And as long as the Fed's doing this, I, I think it's going to be a battle and a little bit of a game of whack-a-mole. I, you know, I think I'm going to get the mole on this mortgage read trade you know i think i'm going to get him twice um you know on the prefs and and the common but it's i look i have the i have the bruises and scars to to show you that it's not 
it's not always that way. But what, but what was it in, in, in 2008, uh, you know, after you'd seen the best Thursday, and then you saw that face ripping rally, was there a, a specific point or a specific event where you said, okay, this is it, it's on now. This is the point where what we thought was going to happen that's been postponed is now coming around. And, and, and how did you kind of think your way through that and then actually put the trade on or put it back on or however you handled that? <laughs> well, again, sadly, I had, I had had the trade on for three years. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, Stephanie will remember our conversations from... I was feeling you know. your pain too. So, <laughs> so look, I we were early on that and, you know, got some scars and bruises, but we also, you know, I, I like to point out that we, we ended up doing well those years anyway, because there were sort of early, you know, I, I call them the canaries in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the most egregious ones went down, you know, before everybody yeah, realized yeah. there was a problem. Yeah. Um, so, so that happens also, but it's, you know, this, this, don't try this at home. I mean, this is this, right. is, this is not so precise uh, and scientific. Um, and you know, we are in the heat of battle now. You know, fighting, um, you know, QE and and all that. And look, I I think you know, don't fight the Fed as we talked about is conventional wisdom. So it's you know, it's dangerous out there. But I, I think there's opportunities. Um, you know, on both the long side and the short side. Um, look, I, I, like I said, we, we, we try to stay market neutral and not take too much of an opinion about, you know, the timing of it, you know, this time around, we, we haven't made much of a bet on, on getting the timing right. Um, you know, we wouldn't have carried out on a stretcher a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. If we, if we had made, you know, in 2016 or 17, you know, the call we made in 2005, 2006. So, um, you know, we're trying to find anomalies and arbitrages and, and, but like I said, there, there's an inherent sort of cynicism about this fed bubble, um, that, um, that actually I want to ask you guys about, but, um, if you want to talk about like some of the things, you know, or, or allow me an example of some of the things that we're trying to do on the, you know, our, our short book is sort of stacked with this cynicism. You know, what, what, what do we own on the long side, you mm. know, other than, you know, discounted preferreds of mortgage rates. Um, you know, we're trying to do like out of the, out of the mainstream conventional momentum, you know, wisdom, old fashioned, you know, value investing um, and, and try to think, you know, a couple of few steps ahead about, um, you know, what's going to be popular and what, what is going to be the rage uh, in a couple of few years. So the example uh, I would use, if you would indulge me, uh, maybe 10, 15 minute story. Oh, we will, um, we will. <laughs> is we have liked uh, for the last couple of years and um, oddly enough, post the onset of COVID makes us love it even more. Uh, uh, I'm talking about, believe it or not, the Puerto Rican bank group. You know, there's really only three publicly traded ones left. And, you know, the thesis had been pre-COVID that these were the survivors of a 15-year recession on Puerto Rico that started in 2006, which I'll get back to. Um, and there used to be something like 15 
banks in Puerto Rico, is inclu in, including um, subsidiaries of all sorts of foreign and Spanish banks. Um, and, you know, when the recession started there and then the crisis happened, uh, uh, you know, a lot of banks went under, um, got taken over by the FDIC and sold to the healthy banks in Puerto Rico, which are the three that we end up owning. Um, now in 2020, and the bank industry there consolidated, and it was like financial Darwinism. The, you know, the three or four that survived were the best and the best underwriters. And now that we've made it through a 15-year um, recession there, we think, you know, we like owning the equity of banks whose entire loan portfolio was underwritten, not with a theoretical recession in mind, but an actual recession yeah, yeah, yeah. Ha ha happening around them. And, and then the loans that they own from buying the failed banks are actually guaranteed by the U.S. government as mm. part of the um, failed bank takeover. Um, so that's been our, you know, and, and, and the market hates the Puerto Rican banks. They trade at huge discounts um, to mainland banks. And um, then the hurricanes came and um, the lights went out and, you know, you had, um, you know, talk about stress testing and already sort of shaky economy. Uh, but you, you know, they lived through that and, you know, made them tougher and uh, <laughs> got them all sorts of insurance and government aid flowing to them. Um, and, you know, we thought it was actually that the recovery from the hurricanes, you know, a la New Orleans in 2006, that was going to help bring them out of recession and start a mini reconstruction and building boom and the banks had all been winnow winnowed out. So we liked the banks. So what does COVID have to do with, do with that? So, the deep story on Puerto Rico, the deep history is that going all the way back to the 60s, um, you know, in the JFK and LBJ era, um, those two presidents actually, you can sort of go back and find speeches of theirs given um, about the need for the American people to bring the, you know, communities like uh, Puerto Rico that was living in poverty and Appalachia and is the sort of backbone of the great society um, and, um, you know, safety net legislation of, of the 1960s. And Puerto Rico was specifically cited in that and, and tax breaks were created, you know, what became known as Section 936 um, of the IRS code to provide tax breaks for building manufacturing facilities and creating jobs on Puerto Rico. And the two industries that, you know, took the bait um, of these uh, tax cuts the most uh, were the textile industry and the pharmaceutical industries. So the textile industry didn't make it in America, you know, tax breaks or, or no tax breaks. Anyway, that all got offshore, but the yeah. pharmaceutical business prospered in America. And you had, you know, most of the major pharmaceutical companies have, you know, major facilities, uh, you know, Amgen's sort of flagship factories on Puerto Rico. Hmm. And, um, you know, became the biggest employer um, on the island, pharmaceutical mm. and medical supply business. Um, and then you go through American history, come the 90s, 
you had, you know, the first thing that went wrong in this story is that uh, when when the Clintons, as I say, became president, um, <laughs> Hillary, Hillary Hillary went on her, you know, drug reform um, tirade. She convinced Bill, I guess, or convinced Congress that the not Section nine thirty six tax break was corporate welfare for the drug companies, you know, public enemy mm. number one, and convinced um, Congress and Bill to sign legislation that phased out Section 936 over a 10-year period ending in 2006, which is when the recession started huh. on Puerto Rico, and it turned the jobs machine around into a sort of jobs-destroying machine. So Puerto Rico went into recession two, three years earlier than the United States did and never came out of it because that industry kept shrinking. So somewhere in the fog of March and April 2020, the thought just invaded my brain as I started hearing about the call to reshore especially pharmaceuticals and medical um, supply uh, in as a reaction to the horror of Americans finding out that uh, the vast majority of their um, uh, antibiotics, face masks, ventilators, you know, sort of like everything. Everything you that need, we, yeah. Everything nice. we needed in the COVID crisis was, you know, made in China or India mm. or, you know, mm-hmm. overseas. That we'd offshored the, you know, pharmaceutical and medical supply business. And, you know, somewhere in my brain, two and two got put together and I started thinking about, isn't this going to be great for Puerto Rico? Mm-hmm. Like, if jobs are going to get like reshored, I don't know if that's a word, um, you know, where are they going to go in the United States and where is it going to have the greatest impact? And it seems to me the answer is Puerto Rico. And, and what's got this, you know, the biggest denominator effect or smallest denominator effect is only, you know, this Puerto Rico is the size of a, you know, medium-sized American city. And mm-hmm. if it's going to be the biggest beneficiary of medical and pharmaceutical, you know, reshoring, it's gonna, it's just gonna very rapidly just be the mirror inverse image of this Mm -hmm. 15 year recession that we saw when the jobs started leaking out. And the more I started digging into it, the more excited I got about it. Because I, I, look, I thought the industry had been kind of wiped out. And what I found out is that it hadn't been wiped out. It just had shrunk. And, you know, jobs growth had turned into jobs destruction, but that Puerto Rico was still the, the you know, if you consider it a state, it would be the largest manufacturer of pharmaceuticals in the mm. United States, like still. larger than... Oh, it is like still. The, huh. It still is. So really? larger than California, larger than Indiana, where Eli Lilly is headquartered and has all these factories. Um, so it's still the largest. If you consider it outside the United States, it's lar- It's twice as large as Ireland um, as right. an wow. a exporter of pharmaceuticals to the United States. But it, it, it is the United States. And you've had, you know, I was wondering whether it would be considered that, but you've had, um, you know, tr- traditionally, you know, Puerto Rico is sort of like a blue cause. So, you know, when the hurricanes right. hit, you know, you had the sort of Democrats fighting mm-hmm. for more aid. And then you had, you know, sort of Donald Trump saying, you know, my aid to Puerto Rico is going to be, you know, that 
that photo op of throwing, you know, bounty the paper, paper towel <laughs> rolls to the, to the people, <laughs> you know, and then picking a fight with the mayor of, of, right. of San Juan, San Juan yeah. um, and, and uh, you know, questioning whether they deserve the aid. Um, so, you know, I was kind of concerned that it would line up as one of these red blue things that would be fought over, but then you know Marco Rubio came out in support mm. of um, focusing. Re, you know he promised to introduce a bill about medical onshoring and that Puerto Rico should be carved out as sort of mm. special, um, you know, a special destination or opportunity zone for it. And you know even you know Peter Navarro, you know this great China China hawk, you know didn't just sort of bash. China can consistently and say we need to, you know, re-onshore or, or whatever we want to call it. He even, in on a, um, in a Bloomberg interview, interview a couple of weeks ago, specifically um, uh, mentioned Puerto Rico as a destination for it. And I, you know, I think, you know, whether the final legislation then mandates, you know, domesticating pharmaceutical and medical product. Um, manufacturing mentions Puerto Rico or not, I think that the, you know, what I call the invisible hand of the market will work anyway. Because if you're, if you're a big pharmaceutical company and you're told, you know, X percent of your production has to be on U.S. soil uh, and, and with no special instruction, um, you know, you're just given, you know, an investment mm-hmm. tax credit to do it and told do it. Um, you know, where if you have the choice of where to do it, I, you know, I think a lot of it is going to go, you know, you're already going to be fighting the, the problem that manufacturing in the United States costs 10 times as much as in China. Right. right. So, you know, there's the inflationary problem of, of onshoring in all businesses. But if you're trying to decide where in the much higher cost United States, mm-hmm. you're going to build your plant. First of all, you have excess Rico labor for, and it happens to be the lowest cost labor of the quote unquote 51 states. So I think with no special incentives, a lot of it's going there anyway. So, you know, how do you play that? You know, I'm a bank analyst and investor. I think it's, you know, uh, I may be accused of uh, only having one hammer and seeing everything as a nail, but I think the nail you have to hit is the Puerto Rican banks. Mm. Um, well, you got moles to hit too with that hammer. Don't you? So, <laughs> going for it. so, you know, the Puerto Rican banks trading at big discounts to tangible book hated, um, you know, they pay through, good dividends too, right? They, they, they're profitable and, you know, they earn good, you know, ROEs that, you know, they're, they're earning good returns on capital in a tough economic environment. If there's hmm. a, commercial um, and manufacturing construction boom on Puerto Rico now, uh, they're going to have growth, better credit quality, um, and and better returns on equity. And and they'll go from, you know, sort of hated to love. Their portfolios are going to be improving while everybody else in the 50 states are suffering from the fallout of of COVID on their lending portfolio and, and Wirecard, you know, son of Wirecard, right. one, two, next, three, four, you know, through 100. So, um, you know, I think there's going to be, I, I think Puerto Rican banks could be like the, the darlings of, 
the next cycle if we do see this legislation, which I think we're going to do. I think we're going to see if there's any, you know, right now the fight in Washington is really about who is going to sponsor the bill, like whose name is going to get on the bill. And, you know, the White House and Navarro are saying, oh, you know, we, we want to do it by executive order. Um, you know, I even saw something about the Defense Department um, mm-hmm. wanting this to be part of their budget. You know, that it's the Army Corps of Engineers that should be building the factory. And this <laughs> right. is national this is uh-huh. national security. Yeah. So it should be part of our budget. I mean that's that's the fight. The other fight that's going on is that, you know, the the Democrats are saying, Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. You know, yeah, we gotta spend, you know, in, this will be part of infrastructure spending. We gotta spend, we have to we have to, you know, build all these factories and 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 improve national security by onshoring pharmaceuticals, but it's unfair to senior citizens and the poor. So in not only do we have to underwrite the cost of, of onshoring, but we then have to include like an extra whatever, $50 billion a year to subsidize the cost of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because it's un, it's unfair. It's, hmm. you know, it's it's um, you know, the, the higher cost of pharmaceuticals will hit those who can afford it the least, which uh, you know they're right about, but it's just mm-hmm. gonna add it, this is the debate. Yeah. Not should we do it? It's how exactly. much who's going to pay for it? Right, right, right. <laughs> and, yeah. and who's going to pay for it? Yeah. So I think it's going to happen, yeah. and and I think there'll be a lot of opportunities in Puerto Rico, um, you know, as an investor in ticker symbols um, exclusively these days. Um, I think the way to do that is through the Puerto Rican banks. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, this is this is. Uh, I feel like we're part of history here. I don't feel like <laughs> at, at any point in in the history of the oh. English language have those words been used in that combination. <laughs> yeah. you know, Puerto Rican banks could be the darlings of the investment world. I don't think anyone's ever uttered that sentence before. So this is this is historical. Uh, you know, it's a fa- it's a fascinating series. I have to say. I mean, you, you know, we we um in in our in our in our rehearsal of the podcast that we did. <laughs> <laughs> we did last week. Um, you know, we we, we talked oh, that was about so that's that's we, so mid mid June. I think we really nailed right. it. Yeah, we really nailed June, it. Grant. Once the lights came on, we really nailed this. But, you Are know, you the, still on that? My God. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I've been on it for a long time. I'm warning you now. But yeah, you know, but it, it, but it, I've been thinking about this uh, ever since. You know, we had this conversation back then, and uh, it's such a fascinating idea. And 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 the more I've looked into it the more interesting it gets because the spillovers into, and Steph and I were talking about this, into real estate and stuff around the island as well. I mean, it's, it could be a huge boom, not just... A real renaissance. Yeah, exactly right. And God knows... Well, there's also, the, there's also the tax play. So just like, you know, people are yeah. leaving right. blue states for red states because yeah. of the lower tax rate. The tax rates are even lower in Puerto Rico than yeah. they yeah. are in Florida and Texas. There's, you know, there's less federal income tax. You're not just escaping state income tax. So, you know, it, it is a low tax, low income tax regime. So there could be, you know, and look, there's been a lot of, you know, people, patriotic, you know, Puerto Rico loving Puerto Ricans have, have left the island because of the lack of jobs. And, you know, if there's a, a turn in the construction and job cycle there, you, you're going to get, you know, that population coming back. I mean, it's just the vicious yeah. cycle turns into a virtuous cycle. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that there was like 14, 15 years of, of population outflow there. And I think, like, I, I think I read that like maybe 10 more people, you know, immigrated to Puerto Rico than, than emigrated in 2019 with the, you know, with the boost to the economy. Um, 
you know, from reconstruction, but that, you know, that could be, you know, if there's a, if there's a commercial construction, you know, factory building and logistics building and distribution warehouse, you know, building cycle on Puerto Rico, there'll, there'll be, you know, a population effect as well. The flip side of that coin is New York city. I, I mean, I know from my building, all the people who work in the building are from Puerto Rico. Uh, and I'm sure that they brought their families here, you know, trying to get a better life. New York City, I mean, the, the flight out of New York City is frantic already. But if these people yeah. can now find better opportunities and safer and healthier prospects in Puerto Rico, maybe they just go home. And yeah, New York well, City, you, you know, know the, the situation <laughs> in New York City may create a reverse, you know, immigration exodus, you know, like yeah. everybody in Spanish Harlem will go back to Dominican exactly. Republic and Puerto Rico. Like it, it really... Hey, everyone else has left. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So, so if I can switch the topics, there's something I wanted to ask you about. Um, we didn't get around to last time and that's the CLO market. I keep reading uh, lots of kind of scaremongery stories about, about the CLO market. It was a, it was a great piece in the Atlantic recently. I don't know if you saw it. Mm. Um, called the looming bank collapse, I think it was called. Um, so I just wanted to get a quick assessment on on the CLO market. You know, are the are the banks the kind of the banks that we worry about? Are, do they hold all the AAA tranche? Are they fairly safe, or is it like subprime and this stuff has kind of weeded its way through the, the food chain? Well, you know, unfortunately, it's very opaque. You know, this it goes back to earlier in the conversation where. You know, securitization, which CLO is a form of, you know, just securitization yeah. of commercial bank loans. You know, the good news is that it has spread the risk around. The <laughs> bad news is that it has spread the risk around. And, um, you know, we were worried, you know, going into this, we were, like I said, we didn't know what was going to be the pinprick. We didn't think it was going to be residential mortgage. We suspected it was going to be something in commercial lending. That seemed to be where the most aggressive uh, underwriting was going on. And and CLOs were, you know, the CDOs of, of, of this cycle. And, but it, it just went on and on and on. And, and, you know, like I didn't know that it was going to be a pandemic that sort of popped the bubble, right, but yeah. now, now, depending on whether companies are allowed to go bankrupt or not, um, and why, what kind of companies are allowed to go bankrupt or not, and whether commercial real estate is allowed to, to have price discovery, you know, the commercial real estate market and the CLO market may or may not have its day of reckoning. I think the way to look at it, unfortunately, which I just I don't have the answer to, is you know. Eventually, you know, the, the Fed keeps moving the line, keeps moving the, the chains or how, however you want to say it, of, of, of what mark, which markets it's going to protect. So it, it came in, the treasury markets weren't, weren't functioning properly in February. So they came in, you know, the repo markets yeah. weren't functioning properly last fall. So they came in and rescued that. You know, you, you, you've, you fast forward and now they've started buying, you know, high yield junk bond ETFs, you know, where are they going to stop? Is it going to be, you know, are, are they going to stop on the right side or the left side of commercial real estate? Are they going to stop on the right side or left side of, of CLOs? Are, you know, is, is the line going to be drawn at, at baseball cards? You know, like where, where, you know, where, where's the line going to be? 
you know, tell me that and I'll tell you uh, whether CLOs are going to unravel or not. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's just interesting to me. I, I, just, I just wondered whether there was a sense that lessons had been either learned or imposed after, after <laughs> the subprime crisis that would potentially make a, a CLO meltdown less contagious, perhaps, that's all. Well, look, I, I think I can tell you that there's a lot of bad LBO and levered collateral and CLOs, you know, whether that's going to be rescued or allowed to un, unwind. Um, you know, I think that the, the bad debt part of it is, is inevitable. But, mm. you know, just, just you know, that's you. Another old saying goes, just because something is inevitable doesn't mean that it's imminent. Um, And the Fed seems to be doing a good job of making things not imminent. And that's, you know, that's just part of the the battle we've been talking about, you know, in version 1.0 and 2.0 of our discussion. (laughs) I mean, it does seem, I won't use the word inevitable, but it seems pretty certain that uh, we're going to face a default wave that's at least as big as what we saw in 2008, wouldn't you say, in terms of, you know, corporate bankruptcies? Um, I mean, even S&P is forecasting a a default rate uh, on corporate debt that would be basically back to where we were in 2008. Um, So the Fed is basically, like you said, they're just buying time will, you know, float you some money to get from here to the other side, but the other side is still nowhere. <laughs> so. Right. Well, look, we're seeing, we're seeing bankruptcy filing after bankruptcy filing. Yes. And yeah. you, know, you say, well, where was the Fed for the you know, Chesapeake bankruptcy? Or you know, where was the Fed for the Hertz bankruptcy? So, you know, they can't, you know, they can pour as much money yeah. into the capital markets as they want. And I, I think I said this earlier, they, they can't, change history. They can't change bad underwriting. And, you know, that, that's going to run its course. Uh, again, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a CLO investor or CBS writer or buyer or, you know, I'm not, I, I don't spend my time opining on, you know, when and, you know, how many cents on the dollar you're going to get back yeah. from this stuff. You know, I just, I, I worry about what's on bank balance sheets. I mean, you know, for the most part, it's relevant for the part of the banking sector that we don't really traffic in, which is really the money center banks and, mm-hmm. you know, the international banks. And we just don't do anything in, in the, you know, the global uh, financial institutions. So I, I don't, you know, this is, it's a little bit above my pay grade and, you know, stress and worry grade. You have enough of that. So. <laughs> yeah, I spend my time worrying about, you know, community banks and regional banks and yeah. it'll, it'll all af- affect that. But um, I, I think that's, you know, more of a macro question for you, macro yeah. mavens, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, look, before, before we wrap up, we, we, we do need to circle back to the beginning and, uh, and your, your theory on yield curve control, which we promised we'd get to before we wrapped up this time. Yeah, around. I'm, yeah. I'm like, I'm brewing a theory, which I, I want you guys to, to help me brew and, and come to the right conclusion on, which is that, you know, I think, you know, you, you, you think the Fed can't be any looser. You know that that this is as loose as before. it gets. So she it's is a uh, <laughs> it, it, it reminds me uh, in the movie 
um, Spinal Tap when they're looking at the album Smell of the Glove. And, you know, one of them says, and then it's just black. They had to change the, the album cover, so it's just black. And one of them says, you know, if you ask the question, you know, could this be any more black? And the answer would be no, it can be none more black. You know, so I asked the same question about, you know, could the Fed be looser? And, you know, I want to say, no, uh, none more looser. Uh, but actually, the, the answer is, yeah, they can. They actually can be looser. Yield curve control. You know, they, they, they've, they, they've targeted, um, you know, endless amounts of mortgage-backed securities, treasury purchases, and they used to, like, ooh and ah the market, you know, back in QE1 and two and three, like, you know, the whisper numbers, they're going to do 20 billion a month, but they, you know, they're going to do 30 billion a month and they're going to start buying mortgage-backed securities. And it was just, you know, one upsmanship over and over again, bigger and bigger numbers. And then when COVID hit, you know, they had that, that sort of like that first, um, you know, QE4 announcement where they announced, I forgot what the numbers are. They're going to buy, it's not even per month. We're going to buy, yeah. you know, this amount yeah. per day. Right, right. Whoa. Yeah. And then they had to do the Sunday night. They're actually going to do 50 billion a day. And they just kept sort of one-upping right. themselves until until it worked. And, and the market hasn't looked back. But now, mm. you know, I think this talk of yield curve control and yield curve management I'm trying to understand that's really QE infinity. That's basically saying yeah. there is, we're not even going to name an amount. They're like, right. we're not even going to go to how much we're going to buy per hour or minute. We're just going to simply say, you know, the two years not going to go above X, you know, 20 basis points and the, 10 years not going to go above 50 and the 30 years not going to go above 70, you know, whatever they choose to be their targets. And it's going to be their, uh, you know, their second Mario Draghi moment where they just, like, like, believe me, we have the printing press. We're going to do everything that it takes. So I start thinking about, and they've started to drop the hints and you hear the Mm -hmm. whispers. The flags are going up everywhere. Yeah, yeah, they're going to preview it at Jackson Hole. And so I'm starting to think about, well, what does the yield curve, control world looks like look like and what i think is kind of frightening about it is that what it really is is them saying we'll do whatever we have to do i think the unintended consequences that we'll do whatever we have to do to to debate debase the currency yeah. mm-hmm. and and to and to drop the dollar yeah. and when you get to and they say you know what i think is an absurd notion that they're doing it to to cure the lack of inflation the problem right. is that there's right. no inflation yeah. 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 <laughs> you know i could swear that they, they they came into existence to fight inflation but now they've convinced everybody the problem is the lack of it so but only only goods inflation yeah. inflation of financial assets inflation. Is, it's like good cholesterol and bad cholesterol yeah. right, right. like good inflation um so i think we already have the good inflation which is asset inflation right, now we're right. gonna now they're gonna bring on the the bad inflation which is the destruction of purchasing power so what happens when they get what they ask for they've instituted yield curve control and they're just they're an infinity buyer you know at certain prices and 
and they get their wish. Inflation starts picking up and the rate of inflation is above, dare I say, hundreds of basis points above where they're controlling the yield curve yeah. down to. So now you have the rest of the world revering the dollar, respecting the dollar as the reserve currency um, and the currency in which they conduct transaction, you know, the, mm -hmm. the currency in which, you know, a, you know, an exporter in Southeast Asia is conducting business with an importer in Africa and vice versa, because it's the stable currency as opposed to their currencies, uh, which have a history of being unstable. So what happens when the rest of the world looks at a, the reserve currencies? government and central bank with a united policy to mm. print as much of it as possible and to monetize every bit of it. So the reason I thought of you, Stephanie, is to ask you this question <laughs> is that I saw one of your recent missives. You're talking yeah. about, you know, nobody has noticed that the people who used to finance our deficits Aren't have, doing. Become, are, are, have become in the scope of history, small, not only aren't they doing it, but they be become small net sellers. Right. So they've already become small net sellers. Right. What happens when the inflation rate is two, 3%, the yield curve is pancaked at, right. at basis points by an infinite bid by and the, the Fed central has bank. Buy even more. Yeah. And the Fed not only has to, you know, Powell's going on 60 Minutes begging Congress to run bigger deficits so we right. can buy more. So yeah. he's now funding, not only funding our deficits, but the thought that occurred to me is he's not even only funding our current deficit. He's funding ever, every deficit the United States government has ever run up. Right. You know, the, the World War II deficit, the Vietnam mm -hmm. War deficit, yeah. the yeah. Great Society guns and butter deficit, the Iraq War I deficit, the Iraq mm. War II deficit, you know, all these things that foreigners used to used, used to fund Fun for us, us. Yeah. you know, according to your work, is funding our own deficits and all of our history's deficits. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm throwing you well, this softball. What happens to the U.S. dollar? What happens to the U.S. dollar in that environment? Well, and and how do they keep controlling the yield curve? How do they, you know, and, and don't the people who used to finance our deficits, or at least some of them, or one of them in particular, China, don't right. they have a vested interest in someday maybe the dollar not being the Absolutely. reserve currency? And by doing yield curve management and, and running these kind of deficits, aren't we handing them like the nuclear football, like aren't we handing them the ability to say, "Oh, what's your bid for treasuries?" Right. Infinite, infinite, sold to you. You know, one trillion of them. Yeah, I mean, I just, I this is why I think this whole debate about the yield curve control is sort of a semantic debate, because ultimately the Fed is already dedicated to making sure that rates don't go up. So effectively, we have yield curve control because anytime, you know, the 10-year gets too high or the five-year moves too high uh, or it looks like credit conditions are tightening up, they come in and they accelerate their purchases. At the same time, as you said, you know, foreigners, this is the, the sort of thing that people don't notice with COVID is 
we're so focused on its impact on our own economy, we haven't picked our heads up to look at what we're going through is happening in every country around the globe. They don't have time to monetize our deficits. They got their own deficits that they've got to monetize. But, so but I, think that the, I think that the difference is we have yield curve control, which was just called QE one, two, three, you know, with these finite amounts. The difference is now it's now infinite and we've been fighting disinflation and deflation. You know, yeah. that's been the enemy. The, the question is what happens when there's no disinflation or deflation yeah. to fight we're, when we're fighting inflation? Well, that's when, 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 the dollar... when the inflation rate is above the yield curve. That's, you know, you know, Grant, you're doing the, you know, the series on the end game, but isn't it, isn't that the end game? Like, isn't this, uh, that's the end game, the, the, well, that they're going to suppress interest rates and they're going to be successful in conjuring up inflation. And that's actually, I mean, that's what they say they're trying to pull off, but it, I, it seems to me that that's actually how it unravels. Well, I that's think, uh, why gold's going up, I think. Yeah, sorry. I, 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 it, it is. It's really interesting because um, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, there's there's plenty of precedent for yield curve control. Even in the United States, they've done it. But if you look at the the Japanese experience with it recently, once they basically said we will peg the ten year at I think it was fifty basis points or five basis points. I can't remember Japan anymore. Um, they found they were buying a lot fewer JGBs because everyone kind of figured well. If they're unlimited, most people um, outside Japan don't own JGBs, so it's much easier experiment to control. But they ended up buying a lot fewer JGBs once they said we're going to peg the we're going to peg the curve. I suspect in the US that wouldn't be the case. I mean, you 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 can just feel the academic papers getting written now saying, well, the Japanese did it and it worked fine, and here's right. how it worked. And, but of course, everybody in the world owns treasuries, and I think your point's absolutely correct. Not not only will they have to fund the deficits, but they're going to have to soak up all the selling from all the people that hold them who are mm -hmm. going to accelerate the stuff that Steph's highlighted. Because all, of see... yester all of yesterday's stuff. Yeah, exactly, well. exactly right. 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 I mean, you, you, but of course, the thing that we're not talking about is the fact that based on the debt servicing costs, they have to peg that yield curve because they're at 1.83% right. right now as the average, I think, debt service cost on the US, $25 trillion. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to go up much above 2.5% before they start eating away a huge amount of the of the tax receipts, which are going to drop precipitously right, given right. COVID. So they don't have right. a choice. So they, yeah, they, the they don't have a choice. They, they, they no. can't let rates rise, but that they'll only be successful and they won't even have to buy a lot of treasuries, you know, in their operations as long as inflation stays low and, and the what people are worried about is negative interest rates. But it all unravels. That that's the insanity of them trying to talk up inflation, right? Because exactly. it's it's they're right, talking right. up the thing that that kills them, ends the, ends the yeah. central bank bubble. It's like right. vampires <laughs> recommending silver. You know, it's just it, it's it basically <laughs> accelerates the end of the demise of the dollar, which you know they're basically going to just dollar and take down the whole fiat money system, which will do away with right. central one banks. Other central <laughs> bank, one other central banks that are holding dollars as reserves say, we don't, not only don't we want this fiat currency as reserve because they've been successful in creating inflation, so they're depreciating mm. my reserves, but holy cow, there's like an infinite bid for them at 
you know, at, at yeah. 110. Um, right. I, I right. can't believe like the same people creating the inflation will pay 110 for my treasuries. The only way they can get around this would be if we have the pension crisis that I keep talking about is going to happen. And they decide the solution to that is to mandate that mandate. all pensions hold a certain amount of treasuries. And that basically takes the job from the central bank and puts it on the, the pension system and said, I mean, that's the only possible thing that could right, help. So but the numbers are so massive that I don't even know if that, you know, obviates the collapse of the dollar. Well, and the pension funds point. are struggling to make 7% returns as it is. If you mandate, they put 20% of their portfolios into, you know, 50 basis right, they, points. They, they have zero chance. Right. Of yeah. <laughs> okay, well, now you guys are going off on the pension thing. This is going to be a terrific bad. happy right. hour anymore. This <laughs> is, right, it's this time is, to get the hook This out. is going to be depressing. <laughs> <laughs> oh. The hook. We, we're the only podcast host in the world that self-hook. But I think, yes, I, think exactly. I think you're absolutely right, Steph. I think you're absolutely oh right. Oh, my God. Well, but, look, si, thank you, Sai. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> this, has been, uh, this has been, again, another fantastic conversation. Um, yeah. Steph and I have had the benefit of two of these, and the listeners have only had one. Right. But, they uh, get better and better. Can we meet and do this again next <laughs> okay. week? Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh, uh oh. <laughs> well, look, I'm sure things will. I'm sure things will uh, change at their typically glacial pace yeah. <laughs> of of uh, so of my whole career, um, wow. which has just been one roller coaster right after another. There'll be plenty to talk about soon enough. Yes. Well, without maybe. doing the same podcast over right. and over. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Enough already. Seriously. Enough already. Uh, I've eaten all yes. the crow I can eat. I'm, I'm full. Someone pointed out to me, you know. 2020 has been a hell of a year and it's only June. So yeah. <laughs> who knows so what I, I, have to look I do want to put in, a, I, I do want to put in another shameless plug for super terrific happy hour, which is the, the previous version of it. Um, oh, if, right. if anyone who's listening to this had, hasn't listened to the Bob Rodriguez interview, um, who was a longtime friend and mentor of mine from the business. I, I couldn't believe you got him um, to sit for you. Um, <laughs> that was an hour and, and change of incredibly um, large pearls of wisdom from somebody who just has a really great sense, a great sense of historical business and stock market cycles and more cycles than I do. And uh, he, you know, he, he got into some of the things I, uh, you know, I don't even, you know, I don't have the strength to go into you know, pension crisis and, and what happens uh, next and, okay. and all that. So I, I would heartily recommend, um, you know, that uh, episode of super yeah. terrific happy hour to any, any of those of you who haven't yet. So there's my, shameless plug for you guys oh. well thank you well, I mean, thank it, you for that is, we were blessed to have yeah. him is, is there a better guest in the world we make him do the podcast twice and he gives us a shameless plug this, <laughs> right. that's, that's like, <laughs> the check is in the mail yeah absolutely <laughs> but we better we better send you two checks one for each podcast i think right. so I thank you thank you so much for doing this twice we we appreciated every minute of it and uh stay safe out there wherever you are in the sunshine yeah, okay great hands. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. I've really enjoyed it. Take care. Bye-bye. Us too. Bye -bye. Thank you. It was excellent. It was really, really good. Don't you yeah. think? Yeah, it was really good. Well, I, got, I guess... He all, is a champ. Uh, he, is, he is a champ. Steph, all, all that remains, I guess, is for us to thank everybody 
for listening to this podcast again, the Super Terrific Happy Hour. Please do, if you haven't subscribed, then please do so. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, you'll find us at STH Hour. But a better way to follow us, uh, if you want to follow me and you're not already, you can find me at TTMYGH. And me at S Pomboy. And said, um, fear in her eyes, but yes, you're right. Do, well, I'm, I always wonder if that's, I'm trying to remember what my handle is. <laughs> that's how active I am. But um, don't we also want them to uh, give their reviews on yes, our we do. podcast? We right? do. If you would be so kind to take a couple of minutes to rate and review the podcast uh, in iTunes or your favorite podcast app, they really help uh, people find the podcast. It gets us up the charts so more people can find us and listen to us. We would be incredibly grateful. We'll be not Steph. We would. And please feel free to use the word super terrific and happy anywhere in those reviews. Exactly right. How's <laughs> that for shameless? Perfect. Perfectly shameless. Oh my gosh. Steph, this has been fun. I dare say we should do this again sometime. What do you think? I think that sounds great. All righty. You take care of yourself and I'll talk to you soon. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.